This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 8th, 2023. Current federal tax developments is brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. This week, I'm broadcasting again from Phoenix and Ed Zollers, and we're going to be looking at a couple of things this week. Three actual developments going to look at in some detail. First, the IRS issued a chief counsel advice that makes clear how strict the Section 125 cafeteria plan substantiation rules are, at least in the view of the IRS. Next, we'll look at a tax court case where the taxpayer's lack of documentation both forced him to accept as gross gambling income for the year an amount that a preparer that he had hired put on the return that nobody seemed to know where it came from. Uh, and secondly, why his lack of documentation wasn't totally fatal to claiming some loss deductions on gambling amounts for the years, but it probably understated his losses for the year. So again, problems with lack of documentation. We will discover that he at least is able to recover his deductions to some extent based on a Cohen rule. So we'll talk about the Cohen rule and also why it worked for him in this case. And finally, we're going to take a look at the tax court that is looking at an interesting issue that's kind of since electronic filing, electronic submission of items. And that is, what is the last second for filing a document? You know, back in the old days, we mailed things in. We need it postmarked by the last day for filing. And we're going to talk about why in the electronic world, we have a little bit different rules for tax court petitions than we do for electronically filed income tax returns. We'll talk about the rules for both. But let's start first with Chief Counsel Advice 2023-17020. This was issued on April the 28th. And this deals with cafeteria plans. Cafeteria plans, if you're not aware of them, are programs under IRC Section 125. And employers can set these up and allow employees to defer amounts from their wages to provide for certain uh, fringe benefits. Now, again, it's only a limited subset. It's what in there. And by the way, for those who may wonder, wait, why haven't my clients done these? It really doesn't work for closely held entities very well, never did, but it doesn't work at all for S corporations, right? Or partnerships. And since we don't have a whole lot of C corporations, well, as you can guess, you don't see many of these, but if you instead are somebody who works inside of a larger organization that has a number of employees, you probably have these in the, in the business. You may have one in the business and we want to discuss the key rules to how, as to how we make them work. So they actually don't end up in the employee's payroll and therefore, and by the way, from the company's standpoint, they don't end up with a bunch of payroll tax liabilities off of all of this as well. So I'm talking a little bit about this in this ruling, because as with any tax benefit, there are always strings attached. And this one's no different. You know, if you're going to get a, a result that is different from the norm, and generally the norm is that it, fringe benefits are taxable. And while there are some fringe benefits that under the law are allowed to be provided by the employer in a non-taxable way, generally, if the employee has a right to choose, between accepting cash or accepting the fringe benefit, well, that's considered to be a taxable fringe benefit, even if it otherwise could qualify, unless that program comes under 125 plans, and a 125 plan will allow you to 
do this deferral, not pick it up in income, but the big string that's going to be attached to two of the favorite types of programs in cafeteria programs are things like the issue of the strict documentation rules. And this chief counsel advice is issued. It's one of those that you pretty clearly get the idea that this was issued to rattle sabers a bit and to put word out to the community, you know, in essence, HR and tax professionals in organizations that have 125 plans, that the IRS means you follow the substantiation rules to the penny and they're not getting about pennies, uh, or your whole program is considered disqualified and all reimbursements end up in every employee's wages. So that's a potential big problem. Now the IRS in here explains the nature of what a cafeteria plan is. As I mentioned, pretty much it allows pre-tax deferrals to pay for certain and only certain specified fringe benefits. You know, you can't, every type of fringe benefit doesn't work under a 125 plan. They're only the ones that are specifically allowed. So for instance, a key one that doesn't work in a 125 is when we talk about employee expense reimbursement programs under 62C of the code. Those are not considered eligible for establishing as a cafeteria plan where an employee could set aside a portion of his or her salary to be used to reimburse expenses incurred for the business. So you have to make sure you're in the list. This particular case is going to cover two key ones. And that's going to be the flexible spending arrangement uh, for health plans on a pre-tax basis, where essentially it's considered to be employer paid for medical care under Section 106, right? Excludable under Section 105B if the plan pays for otherwise deductible 213D expenses with one extra caveat we discussed a couple weeks ago, which is that certain non-prescription drugs while not technically deductible medical expenses under 213 generally for under Schedule A, are still allowed here. If you meet the requirements, then it works. The other one we're going to talk about today is Dependent Care Assistance Program. And if you have a deferral into that, the employee sets aside money to be used to pay for dependent care assistance. That also is excludable in this case under 129 of the code. And those are both those sections are ones that would have allowed a fully employer pay program to be excluded from income if it met all the requirements. Okay. Now, the real problem here is substantiation rules. In general, as is told us in this uh, chief counsel advice, quoting proposed regulation 1.125-1 and 1.125-6, a cafeteria plan that fails to operate in accordance with the substantiation requirements is not considered a cafeteria plan and the default rules apply, which means every dollar of reimbursement is going to be gross income, right? These are going to be a gross income issue, inclusion issue, and not one of those excludable. So don't foul these up is what they're telling you, reminding you. And it tells us a couple of key things important here is that all claims for reimbursement must be substantiated. You cannot substantiate only a percentage of claims, only substantiate claims above a certain dollar amount. Those fail to comply with the requirements and you don't have a cafeteria plan. Similarly, all claims for reimbursement must be substantiated by an independent third party. The employee cannot self-substantiate any expenses. Okay, And again, there is no wiggle room in these areas. The IRS's position is you have to require this. You can't write in exceptions 
and claim they're immaterial, don't matter. Every cent matters is effectively the service position. So all expenses must be substantiated from information by a third party that is independent of the employee and the employee's spouse or dependents. Right? That's automatically included. All amounts paid are health FSA that permit self-substantiation are includable gross income, including amounts that, re that are reimbursed for medical expenses where not substantiated. So it's not as if, let, let's say, we had a program where, you know, the employee submitted substantiation for $1,800 of the expenses and failed to substantiate $100. We don't just put $100 in the W-2. We have to put the whole $1,900 in the W-2. And because our program doesn't require substantiation carried out the next step, it would also seem that everybody that deferred, including those who fully substantiated every dollar of what they paid, would end up with that in their income. Now, I suppose the good news is they could always take their deductions on Schedule A. Bad news is, A, most people don't have enough expenses to itemize, especially after considering the 7.5% of AGI limitations that apply to medical expenses. Right. And B, it's not the same having a number above the line and then the deduction below the line, even if it wipes it out, it still affects a bunch of different tax rules that depend on AGI and some non-tax rules that are in that area. Flexible spending account must also have the same substantiation and it must be substantial providing a statement from if you're going to use a debit card, right? In essence, you're not just going to have the care center bill the employer for the care as it's been provided, then you must substantiate, if you use a debit card to pay for it, a statement from a dependent care provider substantiating dates and amounts for dependent care services provided. So you can't just let the employee self-substantiate, right? And you cannot have them substantiated before the expense is incurred. The employee cannot submit a documentation, let's say at the beginning of the year, that you know he expects to have little Mary Little Mary is going to be staying, you know, being cared for every day by, you know, XYZ preschool. And, you know, and that's going to be X dollars per month. And oh, we just put that away and we're good. No, you're going to have to substantiate as the service is provided. That's going to be the key, right? Reimbursing expenses before the expense has been incurred, before the expense substantiated, fails to supply these rules. And so you can't pay in advance. You can't substantiate in advance. Neither one of those will work. Okay. Now, this advice starts with two broad questions, right? Then they'll give a set of fact patterns and results, and they use this to emphasize there are no shortcuts allowed. You have to do this properly. If you try to shortcut this, you end up with not a cafeteria plan. That's going to be your key from the start. We have no cafeteria plan if you try to shortcut this stuff. Okay. So the first question, are reimbursements of Section 213D medical expenses to an employee from a health flexible spending arrangement, health FSA, provided in a Section 125 cafeteria plan, including the employee's gross income under Section 105B, if any Section 213D medical expenses of any employer are not substantiated in accordance with proposed regulation? And the second question, will expenses be considered properly substantiated if the employee self-certified expenses if the plan substantiates only some expenses using sampling? If only amount over a certain dollar level, de minimis amounts are substantiated. If charges with favored providers are not required to be substantiated or if dependent care expenses are reimbursed before the expense is incurred. And the simple answer for all of those in question two is doesn't work. Okay. 
So it says reimbursements 213 from a health FSA, you know, are including gross income if the expense is not fully substantiated. You know, if it does not require independent third party fully substantiate, use a sampling, anything else, we're going to throw everything into their income. It's a taxable plan. You don't have a cafeteria plan. That's the way this ends up working, right? And you also have to make sure your substantiation takes place after the expense has been incurred, not before. So these are key. All of those will kill your program. Now the IRS goes into six situations. Situation one, we provide, th this is the one where everything's done right. I'm going to tell you that right ahead. Every other situation is wrong and it doesn't work. In this case, you provide a cafeteria plan with health FSA that reimburses the medical expenses incurred by employees. The plan only reimburses qualified expenses substantiated by information from a third party that is independent of the employee and the employee's spouse and dependents. In addition, information from a third party describes the service or product, the day of the service or sale, and the amount of the expense. The plan bases on information from a third party, such as explanation of benefits from insurance party. The plan requires information from the independent party include the date of the care, the employee's share of the cost of the care. That would include coinsurance payments and amounts below the deductible. The plan also requires the employee to certify that any expenses paid by the plan has not been reimbursed by insurance or otherwise, and that the employee will not seek reimbursement from any other plan on the health benefits in question. Lastly, the plan provides debit cards that can be used to reimburse Section 213D medical expenses that meet all of the requirements found in the proposed rates, which means you're going to have to substantiate in those areas, right? This is key. In that situation, the substantiation of all claims complies with everything. Right? Nothing in the way that substantiates the claims prevent the employer from excluding amounts reimbursed from the employee's income or wages for FICA and FUTA purposes. Now let's go to how to get it wrong. Situation two, we allow employees to self-certify. Self Instead of only reimbursing expenses that are substantiated as described in the first setup, the one that's right, in this case, an employee, we will substantiate expenses for which employee only submits information describing the service or product, the date of the service or sale, and the amount of the expenses, but they do not provide a statement from an independent third party, either automatically or after the transaction, to verify the expense. Further, the plan does not substantiate debit card charges, including charges that are not auto-substantiated expenses for incurring medical expenses incurred at certain provider that match the amount, medical care provider, and time period of approved expenses with a statement from an independent third party. If you do this, self-certification does not work because we didn't limit plans to those things that are properly substantiated by a third party. Essentially, we're going to have to pick everything up in income. That's the bad news. Situation three, we try sampling. So instead of substantiating everything, you know, we're going to, in essence, do the debit cards by only pulling a random sample of reimbursed items, checking those, and using that to figure out if the employees are complying, you know, and apparently follow up if we discover employees who don't appear to be, but we're going to use a sampling method. Again, doesn't work. If you use a sampling method, everything's going into income. Uh, bad news, but that's how this works. So we have to kind of work around that one. How about if we establish a de minimis amount? Do they really mean every single penny? Well, in addition to reimbursing expenses substantiated described above, or expenses that are auto-substantiated, if a charge the debit card is less than specified dollar amount, we don't require substantiation of the card or the debit card through third-party information. The employee can just tell us 
that they bought a bottle of aspirin for, you know, whatever, five bucks. Answer, no, still doesn't work, right? It's still a failure. It won't work. You're still going to have trouble if you do that. Again, everything, everything is now taxable to the employees under the plan. Not just the amounts reimbursed under the debit cards, not just the amounts that were the de minimis, but everything. Again, the IRS position is you have a problem here. How about if we have certain favored providers? So if they use providers that we consider trustworthy and you know we, we pay them, that, that favored provider, we're, we're going to assume that that's all right. We don't really require the substantiation though. So in this case, if a charge to the debit card is from certain dentists, doctors, hospitals, or the healthcare providers, then we don't require any substantiation through additional third-party information describing the service or product and date of the service or sale. Even though that sounds like something that maybe should work, right? We're limiting it. It seems likely these will be medical because we've done it for people we've investigated. If the plan does not require this, right, does not limit reimbursements or payments of claims that are substantiated, you know, we don't, we don't satisfy because these are not substantiated. We're letting it skip that. We don't have a cafeteria plan. We're still back to everything in the wages. Yes, this gets picky. So as the IRS said, in all of these situations, we had two, three, four, and five. Remember two, three, four, and five, in various circumstances, we were just going to either let them self-certify, we were going to use de minimis amounts, we were going to, you know, use sampling, or we were going to have certain providers that, you know, if they go and have, you know, go to Dr. Jones, that, you know, we're going to go ahead and let that go because we've approved Dr. Jones. Any of those, everything's going to be in the W-2. Everything will be subject to FUTA and FICA. So, yeah, not, not really a good result. We have an issue there, right? Now, situation six is the special case they have for a dependent care assistance program, and this is advanced substantiation problems. And I take it they did this one separately because apparently they feel that advanced substantiation is a real problem under dependent care programs. In this case, we provide a cafeteria plan with dependent care assistance program under 129 that reimburses dependent care expenses incurred by employees. The plan allows employees to submit a form in advance to receive dependent care, attesting the amount of dependent care expenses they will incur in the upcoming year. The plan requires the employees to notify the plan sponsors dependent care situation changes, and they will not incur the amount of qualified expense which they attested. They're automatically reimbursed every pay period, a pro rata amount that they should have incurred this month. So again, we said, oh, you know, it, it's going to be $500 a month, or at least, you know, based on, I went ahead and, and I deferred 6,000. So, or whatever, 5,000, whatever. And so it's going to be this fixed amount per month, you know, going to the XYZ preschool. And I agree that if in fact I stop, you know, sending little Mary to XYZ preschool and I stop incurring those expenses, I will notify you. So I, I just say, I, I swear, I swear, I swear. I'll actually tell you, I'll tell you. But I don't actually submit proof of the expense being incurred. In that case, you can't, it's not nothing substantiated. It was claimed in advance of the service. You cannot pay in advance of the service to the employee. And you cannot, in this case, be able to, uh, you know, accept that certification. You have to wait till the service is performed, then pay for it. 
They have incurred this amount of medical, you know, they've incurred th this many days of childcare, and we can then pay for that or reimburse that amount. That's acceptable under that program, but we have to have that specific data, generally from the provider, the childcare provider, that the, you know, the dates and times and the kid for whom the expense was incurred. So we, we, we can, you know, get everything in place, right? It also notes that all of these situations two through six are operational issues with the plan. Operational issues are things that can cause the entire plan to be disqualified. So it wouldn't necessarily just be, let's say you have the, your problems only in dependent care expenses. This could spill over and disqualify the plan for everything it's doing. Now, as I said, th this whole thing is interesting. Uh, it's unusual that, that the service issues things like this. Uh, it's not tied to a specific exam, that's very clear. So it's pretty clear this is meant for dissemination among employers. And it's the IRS sending out a warning shot saying, you know, we think you guys are playing a little fast and loose with these rules. We want to remind you what they are. And we also want to remind our, you know, our employees who do exams in these areas of what these rules are and that we expect to have them enforced. So you might want to do just a quick review to make sure that your cafeteria program doesn't have a problem under this notice. You know, if you have third parties administering it for you, you should, you know, make sure that they are aware of this and that, you know, your program does not have any of these problems, you know, or at least explain to me how we're going to defend the thing if it does have these problems, right? So, you know, how are we going to defend against the IRS? And why in the world do we want to be forced in a situation to potentially defend against the IRS on this issue? So we can talk a little bit about that. Okay, next up, this is the first of our two tax court cases for this week. This is the case of Bright versus Commissioner. And this is a, a bench opinion, so it's tax court docket number 10095-22, issued on May the 4th. And in these bench opinions, this is a transcript from the court reporter of an oral decision that was delivered from the bench by the judge in the case. So the judge didn't issue a formal written opinion. We have an oral opinion, just like tax court summary opinions. These are not binding on you know, the court other cases, but they, they give us a view of how the court analyzed the deal. And presumably you would expect the court to you know, react to similar facts in a similar fashion in the future. And I think this is a good example. This case is a really good example of the key of documentation. And this is a cautionary tale for taxpayers about a number of things, right? First thing is you want to make sure you take care when getting a return prepare. In many ways, this taxpayer tried to take care in doing it. But when things happened with this prepare he's recommended to, that, you know, he, he wanted a person who was good on this and he discovered that somebody else was going to prepare it. If that was a problem for him, then he really kind of had to step back and say, well, no, I want a person who's expert in this. It becomes pretty clear when we see what happens with the person he got assigned to at the firm, um, that this person was not really expert in this area. And secondly, you have to understand the return you're given and review that return. As we'll discover, taxpayer didn't review the return he was given. Taxpayer is ended up being stuck in a really bad way with the total gambling income that the preparer had put on the return, even though everybody agreed that nobody could figure out how she came up with it. Nobody knew how it happened. Right. 
So this involves taxpayers gambling activities, right? The IRS did decide as mentioned, you know, the taxpayer had reported she'd put him on the return as a professional gambler, uh, listed total gambling income of about three times what was on the W2Gs, and then offset that with gambling expenses. But of course said he was a professional gambler. Now he agrees and the IRS claims he's not, and he agrees he's not a professional gambler. So Schedule C was an issue. Now, even though the IRS accepted her reported income, they attempted to disallow all of his gambling expenses, again, claiming that he did not have adequate documentation. As we'll discover, IRS is not going to carry that one with no changes. They're going to have to make some changes there. Okay. Now, Mr. Bright, as the court notes, was somebody who had been gambling. He's 36 old. You know, he's been gambling, they said, half his life. So ever since he turned 18, he's been gambling. And it kind of appears that he has a bit of a gambling problem. You know, gambling has had a negative effect on his life. So obviously, most likely, he's losing money at the casinos regularly. Casinos stay in business not because people make money off them when they go in there. They stay in business because they work the odds. And especially somebody who plays regularly every day is pretty much almost certain to lose, especially playing games like slots. You know, that where the casino literally can control the odds down to the less, you know, you know, sub, you know, percentage, they can make sure that, you know, that that's going to work. And the way the rules with large numbers work, you know, while you will have winning streaks from time to time, it's pure random. We as humans like to assign patterns where none are. We always look for a pattern. And that really works well in getting a gambler to keep coming back to the slot machines because we know when they do just randomly, which they will get, you know, a time period that let's say for a week or something, they suddenly start, you know, winning more than they're losing by a good margin. Um, you know, they, they will discern a pattern there and then they'll start working that pattern uh, again. And that's also why the casinos try to make sure that over time, you know, the odds are in the favor of the casino and things like that, but usually only by a couple percentage points. But if you can keep somebody coming back to the machines, by doing that, they make sure they have wins and that gets them back to the machine. And even if you're only barely, you know, even if you're only winning on, let's say, you know, 52% of the time you win, 48% of the time the house loses and, you know, the numbers are about the same each way, up or down. Um, as long as you keep them playing, and do enough volume with their plays, that percentage will make you a lot of money. And, you know, th those casinos that are nice, big, fancy, glitzy, and have all that nice stuff, that stuff does not exist there because they don't know how to work these numbers. They do, right? Now, he played in three casinos, and like a lot of our clients, he used, you know, you have clients who do this very often, they tend to have players' cards to place bets from the balance on his card. And the casinos would track your gambling activity while using those cards. And he regularly used those cards, almost always using them. And he had reports from the casinos summarizing his activity for the year in question. And according to casinos, every one of the casinos, he lost money, according to them. Now, you might think this would make the whole situation easy, but it didn't really. We'll talk about why it doesn't and where the problems came. But there were a number of issues here. You know, and again, some of the casinos don't track everything. So, for instance, they may not track. I think one casino clearly did not track sports betting, and he did that. 
So that wasn't in his list. Uh, you know, there were other reasons why there might be other betting going on aside from those three casinos. And that's going to factor into this because the only information we have is what's on those documents and what's on his return. We'll find out that that's going to come back and haunt him. Okay. Now, he did get a recommendation for return prepare, but things didn't go quite as expected. So as he noted, he hired a specific person who said, oh, th th this guy knows gambling. He works with gambling. But when he went there, apparently prepared, didn't have time to do it. So he had his daughter do the return. And it seems to imply that the guy who really was the expert didn't really look much at the return either. Right. Uh, you know, she reported him as a professional gambler, even though we agree he's not one. Uh, he did not review the return. Uh, her return showed 240895 of gross receipts from professional gambling and equal amount of expenses. The expenses reduced the net profit from gambling to zero. Now, odds are most likely he lost money that year. I think I don't think anybody would disagree that's the most likely thing that happened. The problem's going to be he's going to be stuck with that 240895 because he has no other evidence of the proper amount of his income. You're saying, wait a minute, he, he, he's got the W-2, you know, W-2Gs from the casino. I mean, he's got that. Problem is, as the court would note, that's not going to work. Now, the IRS determined there was a deficiency of 68214 a substantial understatement penalty. Again, they removed all this activity from Schedule C, and everybody agreed it should be. Um, they just reported the winnings as other income and they disallowed entirely the losses. Now, the taxpayer, after the IRS issued that first report, went back, prepared an amended return, and he reduced his total gambling income to just what was on the uh, W-2, you know, on his W-2Gs, right? You know, and he reported his gambling losses and then the extent of winnings on Schedule A, he had losses to the extent of winnings. IRS didn't accept that. They went with their original report. So we end up in court. The court notes this is a substantiation case. And that's going to try to be a problem. Now, first problem is the income side of this equation. He said $240,000 is, is it couldn't, it's not right. Now, he admits he has no idea how she came up with that number. Um, he also admits, right, he has, and he has no other records aside from the W-2Gs. But he tries to claim, which many of our clients will try and do here, well, my only gambling income is the W-2G amount. Well, the courts have said this multiple times. This is it, right? We'll talk about how this works. That's not going to play so well. But the IRS also overplayed their hand in this case, right? They're going to try to disallow the entire amount of income. And so that'll be the key. The problem the court says is you failed to establish your winnings are less than what was on their Schedule C. That may not be the right number. In fact, I think it's a pretty good chance it's not. But we don't know if there's more than that number or less than that number. But as the court said, the one thing we know for sure is you won more than the total of $110,553 that's reported on your W2G for slot machines, right? First thing is only jackpots of $1,200 or more are issued, right? And they're not required to keep track of smaller winnings, right? So as the court said, given the frequency of his gambling and the fact he played games other than slot machines, 
He has winnings beyond what's on there. There's no question he does. So there's no question 110,553 understates, probably significantly, his winnings for the year from gambling. Okay, that's a big problem. So we know the W2Gs do not reflect all my gambling winnings, and you don't have any way of coming with a number. And the IRS has said, we'll accept the 240 on the Schedule C, and the court's like, I, I don't have any way to say, I don't have any way to change that number. You've given me nothing that allows me to change the number. And like I said, key issue that clients run into, even if something's not on a, on a 1099, it's still income. And gambling, absolutely, there should be more income than what you see on the W2G, unless literally you have a client who went and, you know, only once played the slots, right? You know, pull, pulled the handle once, somebody was there, he was bored, he was waiting to pick somebody up, so he went in and, you know, put, put some money in a slot, you know, put, put for a single pull, five bucks, whatever, in a slot, you know, pulled the handle and gets a $25,000 jackpot. In that scenario, okay, we, we can, you know, maybe it is only the W2G. That was the only transaction all year. But when you have somebody who's playing every day, you have somebody who has winnings that are like 110,000 from many, many, many different wins. And the court actually lists all of the specific 1099Gs he got for each separate win above 1,200. It's like, clearly he's playing way more often and clearly there are other, there are a ton of wins below 1,200. And he's just not reporting them. So bottom line, he got stuck with that number from the Schedule C, even if nobody knows where it came from. But on the losses, there the IRS gave him more leeway. While the taxpayer does have a requirement to maintain records to establish the amount of each deduction, if they don't have those records and the expense in question is not one that Congress has covered with some anti-Cohen rules, like the requirements for documenting travel under 274D, right? Certain other, or the requirements for charitable contribution documentation that we've talked about a bit here over the past year where the IRS keeps winning on those cases because there are no documentation, no deduction. But if that's not something Congress put in the code for the specific item, as long as you can establish that you paid or incurred an expense of this sort, but you don't establish its precise amount, precise amount the court can supply an estimate as long as you have a basis on which an estimate can be made. This is the Cohen defense. And in this case, we're going to use the Cohen defense. The court's going to turn to this, right? And they've used it, as the court carrot knows, in cases like Coleman from 20, TC Memo 2021-46, you know, they've used various methods to work their way back into the losses a gambler must have incurred. So ATM receipts, check based payable to casinos, bank statements, evidence about modest lifestyle, overall financial conditions. These have all been used as ways to estimate how much was the gambling loss for the year. In this case, they used casino documents coupled with his testimony. They said it makes clear he, substantial, he had substantial losses. We know that happened. Now he testified he lost more than he gained from gambling and the gambling made his life difficult for him. Indeed, casino reports, like I say, confirm his testimony showing that even with some sizable winnings, he lost more than he won for those times his winner losses were captured. Although they do not capture the full picture, they provide a sufficient basis on which they can make an estimate. But they're not just going to blindly accept that he lost money. That's going to be his problem. 
Now they walk you through each one of the methods they used in each of these, right? So the IRS's flat out denial of a deduction was not accepted by the court. We're going to use a Cohen style, uh, defense Cohen style analysis. But as I said, even though every report show he had a loss, the court does not use that as sufficient to show that his losses were greater than his income. A key problem here is you can't show that every gambling transaction he did went through these reports. Even better, we know they didn't because we know there are things that are excluded from these reports. We know there are types of gambling he did that the, some of the casinos simply didn't pick up on these reports. So bottom line, you can't use that to do the proof, right? Uh, now they go through the basics. They go through, you know, the idea of how they estimated the first one. And one of the things they said was, well, clearly, you know, if he had winnings of 8162 in the month of January, but an overall loss of a 92, then he must have lost 9354, right? So we, we could net that, you know, they, they report winnings, they report and net loss is W2G winnings were 8162. His report from casino shows he lost 1192 during the month. Well, he must have lost, they said, 90, he must have had at least 9354 losses. Now, likely he had more losses. Now, remember, here's the problem. We're including income beyond what he you know, has on W2Gs. And we know that income exists, but we don't have any idea what the amount is and there's no way to tie it to specific casinos or make this work. This is where he's going to lose out on this analysis consistently, right? They're going to do the type of analysis we're talking about here by using this monthly analysis using the W2Gs and coming up with methods for a minimum, right? So, you know, we accepted his testimony. He rarely gambled when not using his card. And it says, you know, the documents from the casinos back this up. So, hey, bottom line, you know, we have a certain minimum amount he had to lose at the first casino. Now, the second casino, we have different reports only show net gain or loss, but also tracks the source as being from the slot machines or the pit area and tells us which do the dollars put into each area. Well, in that case, we can do a little better estimates from that. So we, we could work that up there at the second casino. And the third casino was very, very similar to the second. Or I should say, yeah, in this case, I should say the first. And so we have this issue. So it's imperfect. It's almost certainly understating the number. But based on what they had, instead of zero, um, they're going to say, well, he had to lose at least 191756 Okay, based on analyzing each one, forgot how much would have be the very minimum he would have to lose. And this is also a consequence of how Cohen works. The court's not going to give you a break here in terms of, you know, saying, well, I know he had to lose more than that. So we're just going to like fudge it for this amount. They're not fudging. Right, they're going to only give you the amount they could clearly establish. In this case, you know, you didn't keep records. That's your problem, not theirs. Um, we do have third-party documents we can use to establish for sure a minimum amount of loss, but you're just going to get the minimum. So you're going to get the 191,756, and bottom line, not going to get the rest. Okay, a couple of takeaways from this. Number one. Do recall, whenever it goes to court, if you're just reporting W2G numbers, the court, if the IRS squawks about that at all, the court's going to force you to move that number up, right? And that's going to be a problem. You haven't kept records. So, you know, make sure your client understands that it's not just what comes out of the W2G. If you're gambling, we need to know what you did. There are ways of doing it. There are various methods we've talked about in the past. 
where you could use a system like, well, I go in the casino in the morning, you know, and I take out, like I go to the ATM, I take out, you know, $200 and that's the money I use for the day. I gamble that day until I either run out of $200 or I get to the end of the day. And then I count the end of the day for what I've got. If I only have $200, then net my, my net wager for the day was I bet $200 and lost it. If at the end of the day I have $300, then my net wager for the day, my wager for the day was still $200, but I won $300. You know, so you net out that way. There are ways you can do it, various methods. You can do it literally pull by pull, but there are ways of doing it other than pull by pull. Now, how that will, that sort of thing works for other types of gambling, it's not clear. Um, you know, but we do have cases that have allowed the pull, allowed the, you know, daily gambling for slots and video poker type machines. It's allowed for things like that. So just be aware we need the records. Finally, we're going to take the case of Nutt versus Commissioner. This is a published case. 160 TC number 10 came out on May the 3rd. And this case is interesting because it deals with an issue that didn't exist when I started in practice before electronic filing, right? And that's the problem is I don't need to know the last day for filing. With e-filing, I may need to know the last second for timely filing. When I first started in practice in 1982, fresh out of college, my first year in my, my, my first end of tax season, that was, I mean, the rule was pretty simple as we got to like the October, in that case, we had the August 15th interim filing deadline. We used to have to go for two extensions during the year. And then October 15th, you know, when August 15th rolled around, you know, that extension form needed to be to the post office in time on August 15th, the second extension, which had been the first one I'd been involved with, um, you know, and I wasn't that involved, you know, let brand new staff only a few months out of college uh, handle a whole lot of details there. But, you know, we knew that that piece of paper had to be to the post office before the post office closed that night so that it would be postmarked by the post office with that day's, you know, date. And we know if we got the post office after the doors were locked and after they had, you know, done the final pickup from the mailboxes in front of the post office, you were out of luck. You were too late, right? You couldn't get that fixed. So but that was easier. It was that day you made the post office or you didn't. Now with electronic filing, we literally can run up to midnight. Now I should say back in those old days with mailings, uh, at least on like the April 15th deadline, you know, the post offices would, at least one post office in Phoenix would always be open until midnight. You know, the last, when the last times they were doing it before electronic filing really made this pretty much moot and they stopped worrying about it. You know, it would be like the main Phoenix post office, you know, the big one where everything comes through and then gets sort of sent out to the, to the, you know, to the basically to the neighborhood post offices. That'd be the one had a line of cars and they would mark who was in line by midnight and every car in line by midnight, even though they might not actually get to the drop-off point to hand it to a post service person until well after midnight, they were still considered to be timely filed. That was how so the old days worked. Now with electronic filing, we can literally take it to midnight, but which midnight and how we count it is very different for different types of forms. Now, this case illustrated that different rules apply for filing documents via the IRS with e-file. We'll talk about those rules first. That's probably what you're going to be mainly interested in right up front. But if you do file tax court petitions, we're going to talk about filing petitions with the U.S. Tax Court and the different rules about whose midnight do we use is really the question as we get there.
So in this case, for returns electronically filed with the IRS, Treasury Regulation 301.7502-1D1 provides that the electronic postmark is used to set the date that this was filed. And again, it still needs to be filed during the day, the last day for filing to be timely. By the end of that day, it must be filed. Treasury Regulation 301.7502-1D3II says you look to the time zone of the taxpayer, not the electronic return transmitter, nor the ERO, but the taxpayer to determine if there's when it's midnight for timely filing. Okay, that's the simple rule. So, you know, let, let's say you're a preparer, you're a tax preparer, and you are in New York City, and you have a client that's in Los Angeles, right, three-hour time differential, well, you could file that as late as 3 a.m., you know, before 3 a.m. your time in the East Coast. As long as you got in before 3 a.m. your time, it'd be before midnight on the Pacific time zone, which is where your client's at, and that would still be a timely extension. You would find out that your New York clients, your East Coast clients, sorry, none of those can be filed that time, but the Californian could be. You know, and similarly, you know, if you have a client who lives in Hawaii, well, that's six hours time difference when daylight savings time is in place, which it would be in April normally. That would mean you, you could actually do it as late as almost 6 a.m., which is the way we are as accountants. We like to get up early, it seems, or most many of us do. Um, so if you're actually working the day after tax season, you literally could do it the next morning. You know, I have a partner who seems to love coming in super early in tax season. She'd clearly have time to work up an extension and get it filed before 6 a.m. If she was sitting there on the East Coast and had this Hawaii client. The reverse is not true, though. A paid preparer, you know, let's say you're a New York taxpayer, your paid preparer is in Honolulu. That, tax, that preparer in Honolulu has got to get your extension in by 6 p.m., you know, Hawaii Standard Time. If they don't, the return will be considered late filed or the extension will be considered untimely. So kind of a big deal how that works, okay? Now, the actual regulation here, you know, tells us, yeah, that a document filed electronic, the electronic returns transmitter, uh, it's filed in the, you know, in the manner and time prescribed by the commissioner is deemed to be filed on the day electronic postmark, which is defined later, given by the authorized electronic return transmitter. Thus, if the electronic postmark is timely, the documents could have timely filed. Although it is received by the agency officer or office after the last date or the last day of the period prescribed for filing such a document. You know, you, you do, you've seen the IRS get backed up on electronic filing. And sometimes you're going to find, you know, that, that your, your extensions are finally acknowledged by the service well after the due date. But as long as that e-postmark date issued by the transmitter, which for most of us is going to be our software provider, Okay, who's who in this? We are the electronic return originator, the ERO. But most of us do not transmit to the IRS. We rather send the return to our software provider who, when they receive the return, immediately then retransmits it to the uh, government agency. Okay, so when they receive the return and do their routine of kicking it over, that's when you're going to have the date. So it is important to remember that it's not really when you send it to Thomson Reuters or you send it to Walters Kluwers or you send it to Intuit. Rather, it's when they get it and then send it forward. 
So if you had a big return that let's say took quite a while to transmit up because it had a lot of attachments and you're on a slow line, not necessarily going to be good enough that, that you tried to start the transmission before midnight. If we don't actually get the transmission through until after, there's a good chance that's not going to be postmarked as a pre-midnight filing. So just fair warning how that works. Now, the actual definition of postmark means a time, record time and date. Uh, an authorized return electronic transmitter receives transmission of the taxpayer's electronically filed document on its host system. However, and this is the key caveat for the special we're looking at here, if the taxpayer and electronic return transmitter are located in different time zones, it is the taxpayer's time zone that controls the timeliness of the electronically filed document. Right? So, bottom line, we have an example for tax returns. These are not for tax court petitions. On tax return, let's say we have a taxpayer that resides in Texas, central time zone. The transmitter is an authorized electronic return transmitter located in Colorado, which is in the mountain time zone. Uh, taxpayer X emails their tax documents to a tax professional who's also located in Texas on April the 18th at 7 p.m. Central Time. And you, there are those of you that are crazy enough to accept this and try to actually get everything filed. National Z receives the email electronically, sends the tax return to the transmitter at 8 p.m. Worked it up quickly, right? The transmitter then transmits the return to the IRS at 10 p.m. Mountain Time. Not quite sure why they waited, but they did. Okay, they acknowledge the receipt at 1 a.m. Eastern Time, right, on April the 19th. Okay, under the regulation, the tax return is deemed filed date electronic postmark given by the authorized electronic return transmitter. In this example, the postmark is April 18, 2023, which is 10 p.m. Mountain Time, which is timely as that is 11 p.m. Central Time when recast the taxpayer's time zone. Since that electronic postmark's timely, tax return is considered filed timely, even though it was received by the IRS after the last day prescribed for filing. They received it on the 19th. That, that's when they came back and acknowledged it, right? They said, yeah, yeah, good. IRS acknowledges receipt on the 19th, but because the transmitter has an e-postmark that was dated before midnight Texas time, midnight central time, that's good enough. And it's good enough whether the transmitter is in Denver New York or Honolulu, same difference, right? Does it? Now, the tax court does not use IRS e-file for filing petitions, right? And the IRS has issued no regulation under 7502 to cover electronic tax court petitions. They could, because 7502, the timely mailing rule, does apply generally to tax court petitions, but remember 7502's default rule only applies to a postmark if a postmark is applied to the envelope that's used to transmit the document, and that postmark is dated on or before the last date for that document to be delivered to the whoever we're sending to, in this case, the tax court or the IRS, then it's considered to be timely filed. The IRS, by regulations, can expand that and explain how that would apply in a case of electronic filing, but the IRS has never issued regs on, well, they issued regs on the tax returns. We just looked at those. They've never issued regs on the petitions to the tax court. Since the petition was not mailed, the timely mailing rule does not apply, right? You don't meet the requirements of 7502. There is not a postmarked envelope, and there's no method provided in the regulations that would give an electronic filing method and the one used in the tax court uh, the equivalent of the postmark date found in 7502. We have that for returns filed with the IRS. We don't have that for tax court petitions, right? Because electronically filed petitions not delivered by U.S. mail or designated delivery service, 
the exception found that 7502 does not apply. Where 7502 does not apply, you must look to the date the petition was actually received and filed by the court to determine whether it was timely filed. That's from the Kessel case in 1979. This is going to be our problem, right? The taxpayers reside in Alabama. That is the central time zone. A final petition to the tax court was due on July 18, 2022. Okay. The petition was filed electronically via the tax court's electronic case management system, the Dawson system, at 11.05 p.m. Central Daylight Time on July 18th. The cover sheet shows the tax court received a petition at 12.05 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on July 18th. The tax court main offices are in D.C., which is the Eastern Time Zone. Now, if this had been a tax return transmitted you know, via e-file, and let's say via a transmitter, who might have been the Eastern Time Zone, but the fact the taxpayer was in Alabama, the central time zone, that would have been a timely file if it had been a return. But as we'll discover, tax court petition, it doesn't work that way. Rather, you have to beat the tax courts, end of day, which is eastern time zone based. Okay. Okay. So again, as they said, reminding us, unless the timely mailing rule of 752 applies, which means you mail the petition in, had they mailed the petition in, and gotten it postmarked on that date, they wouldn't have had a problem. And it would have been received well after 12.05 a.m., you know, on the following day. It would have been received, you know, probably many days later. But it would have still been timely because 7502 would have covered it. But they elected not to go that route, so they're going electronically. And this is the key. Now, Rule 22A of the tax court provides a paper must be filed with the clerk during business hours unless it's electronically filed. As for electronic filing, Rule 22D provides paper will be considered timely filed is electronically filed at or before 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on the last day of the Apple period for filing. Note the use of Eastern Time Zone there. So that is the rule. It must be Eastern Time Zone. That, you know, that client in Hawaii is not going to be getting more time than the client in Washington, D.C., they will both have exactly the same, you know, basic time. Let's say if we looked at uh, Greenwich Mean Time, right? Use GMT as your measuring time. Um, you know, we would have exactly the same time. They'd have to get it in to the tax court. The website also instructs petitioners about how to file a return through Dawson in accordance with this rule. And they give you a reference to their online document, right? And they, they pulled it up as a March service. They did. The first instruction says, check the deadline. You may receive a notice in the mail from the IRS. The court must receive your electronically filed petition no later. And remember, the court must receive it no later than 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on the last day to file. Petitions received after this date may be dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Right? It's untimely, right? Um, it came in five minutes too late. If we were to hold the nuts electronically filed petition was timely because it was still the last day to file in Alabama, even though the last day had ended District of Columbia, we'd be impermissibly extending the number of days available for filing is the tax court position because the courts have been clear. By the way, this same rule is used generally in the federal courts. So again, it is the date of wherever the court is located and the tax court is deemed located in Washington, D.C., so, you know, you've got until midnight where it's located, regardless of where your plaintiff's at. 
regardless of where whoever plaintiff defendant whoever's filing uh you know you have to file i guess in this case plaintiff for a petition uh in this case but it's got to be by that date right now what's the practical takeaway from this case well first thing is don't find things so late that these rules become important the smarter thing to do always is to be filing so early that this isn't a problem the Supreme Court's Boyle case makes it clear that even being slightly late on filing a return extension means it is late. So for those of you, we're not talking about tax court petitions here, those same rule, but bottom line is, as the tax court shows, we're going to be picky. And that's also true. The Supreme Court has refused in Boyle. They refused to allow somebody said, well, I, you know, I depended on my return preparer to get this done, you know, various other rules, or I screwed up somehow. It's like, no. You know how to do it. You know how to get it done. It's not that tough. You screw it up. Tough luck, right? And the real thing to remember is, and this is something I want to remind and try to drive home on you, why we don't ever want to be close to the case that happened in Nut. Um, things go wrong. If you're going to be pushing e-filing to midnight, right? You're, you're there after 11 p.m., after 11.30 p.m., even to be totally honest, after about 4 p.m., Things could happen. Your ISP could go down. You know, just today, before I recorded this, you know, earlier this morning, you know, it didn't go down very long, but my ISP actually did lose the internet for about 30 seconds. Now, that's fine, unless those 30 seconds had occurred just before midnight. On electronic filing date, then that 30 seconds could be a major problem. You could lose power. We have two times, you know, in the past five years, lost power to our office entirely because of problems with underground power lines, you know, that have been underground for a long time and they're starting to deteriorate and pieces are shorting out sometimes before our utility gets around to replacing them first. And when that happens, we tend to run out of power for a while and they have to dredge up the line and put a new one in. And that takes four to five hours once they find out where the problem is. So if that occurs, you know, late on the last day for filing, first thing is I don't know how long we're going to work overtime working on a business account when, you know, they're going to consider that lower priority because the business mainly won't be opening until 6 a.m., you know, till maybe 7, 8 a.m. the next morning. So they got plenty of time to make this work. But secondly, you could just be down. The various things could happen. Your computer could have a failure. I remember once getting ready to take a course online um, and the instructor in question was going to be using his laptop and he was located in one city. His support staff was located in another and his laptop, like 10 minutes before the course was to start, just totally died. I mean, just, just gave it up. It's gone. It's never coming back. It died. Right. That, that made for a wild scramble. He did find a way to do it. They found a way to set up a machine in the office where the support staff was working. He had to tell him when to switch slides and do other things. And he was trying to follow along on his phone. There's all kinds of things that went wrong. But these things could happen to you in your office. So waiting to the last second, probably not a good thing. I would say generally the best practice is, is, is to get these out where there would still be time in the worst case that we could get paper extensions done or paper returns signed and mailed to the post office in time. Once we get past that date, we should be covered. Right? Or clients should be warned that if they're delaying us to go past that time because they can't get things together, then they're responsible if for any reason. We, we, we take no responsibility of saying that our systems will last the day, 
that we will be able to produce a return or any of those things will happen. Any consequences become theirs if they decide that everything can wait until, you know, 10 p.m. the last day for filing. That's going to be the key. Now, if you're going to ignore this rule, because I know a lot of you will, are going to do that, uh, make sure you double check the law and specific issue of which time zone is to determine what midnight is for whatever it is you're trying to file. Because remember, we're electronic filing a lot of things. You're electronic filing state and local returns. You're electronically filing sometimes other documents, let's say maybe sales tax returns, other issues or other things, right? Make sure you know exactly what's considered the last second. What would be considered a timely filed and what's the measuring criteria and how do we make sure we stay under that? Don't just assume because again, as this points out, even two things that both in theory came out of the timely mailing rule ended up with different answers when we went to electronic filing. So be there. And be sure you understand how your tax software provider is going to handle the e-postmark timestamps. You got to remember when you start your transmission is not really the key. It's when they receive it. And you got to make sure you understand how it's getting there and whether there might be some sort of delay in the system, you know, and you need to be aware of how it's going to go. Otherwise, we can run into big problems. This has been the Kernfeld Tax Developments for the week of May the 8th, 2023. Kernfeld Tax Developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. As always, if you have any questions, you can email me at dollars at kernfeldtaxdevelopments.com. I'll try to get back to emails. I can't always guarantee I will but I'll try to take a look in there and answer things. We also, uh, you know, I tend to follow things along on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, Washington. And I also tend to, um, you know, take a look at what's being posted on Idaho's site if somebody posts this issue there. So if you're a member of any of those societies, you can post on one of their Connect sites and I may be able to, I may post there if I think I could be help in that area. Otherwise, uh, hopefully you're having a good May. Welcome to May. I remember your not-for-profit extensions all have to go out next week. So make sure on the 15th of May, you've gotten that taken care of, right? Remember all those nice due dates. I guess you got a C-Corp that ended in January. Yeah, it's time to get that, that one filed too. Maybe even a, maybe you got an estate or something that has a fiscal year. Or even an individual fiscal year and that's January 31st. Remember those January 31st people, right? Or maybe February 28th people for those that are, let's say if you actually had a partnership or S-Corp with a they qualified for that odd fiscal year. I remember those things. Otherwise, we'll see you again next week uh, when we'll come up with whatever's come up that the following week here in current federal tax developments.